Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 51. Today's big Bible question, what is God's actual name? Yes, he does have a name. So our Bible readings today include Job chapter 20, in which Zophar, Job's friend, will erroneously tell us that the wicked are always punished while on earth, and their plans never succeed in the long run. Luke chapter 6 contains Luke's shortened version of the Beatitudes, as well as Jesus' challenge to the scribes and Pharisees about the Sabbath. 1 Corinthians 7 is a bit of a confusing passage in a few places, but it does have lots of great advice on marriage, including, number one, you don't have to get married, but you certainly can if you want to, and you must get married if you are burning with sexual desire. Number two, husbands and wives have authority over each other's bodies. The husband has authority over his wife's body, and the wife has authority over her husband's body. And one implication of that principle is that neither party is allowed to withhold regular sex from the other with the only exception being a mutually agreed-upon break in order to more intentionally seek the Lord for a short short season. Our focus passage today is in Exodus chapter 3, the famous burning bush passage where God calls Moses and sends him to rescue the Hebrews. In this passage, God reveals his name and his nature to Moses in a deeper way than we've really seen before. And our big question today is, what is God's name and what does his name mean? So let's go read Exodus 3 and then we're going to come back and discuss it. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, 
I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you and to what you have has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. So Exodus 3, verse 14, when Moses asks God, what is your name? Who should I tell the Israelites who sent me? God replied to Moses in the CSB, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, when you read this in some other translations, that was the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. But if you were to go to, for instance, the Holman Christian Standard Bible and read verse 14 and 15, this is what it says. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So far the same. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That appears to be something of a discrepancy, doesn't it? One version says Yahweh, the other version says capital L-O-R-D. But it's not a discrepancy, because here's what's going on. The Christian Standard Bible, which is the translation that we are reading through on the Bible Reading Podcast, uses capital L-O-R-D in verse 15, and really following that in Exodus 3. All of the times uh, where God's name is used, I am that I am, it is capital L-O-R-D. But the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is actually my favorite translation, uses Yahweh in verse 15 and following. So what gives? And the answer is that 
God gives Moses his name, his personal name in Exodus 3.14, and that name is Yahweh. In the Hebrew, his name means I am that I am, or perhaps I am because I am. Most modern Bible translations, the King James Bible included, translates Yahweh to capital L-O-R-D with all capitals to indicate that God's name is being used. Now, why would they do this? Well, there's a few reasons. For one, most modern Bibles are translations, and therefore they seek to translate every word from one language to another. Occasionally, that's quite difficult when faced with hapax legomena, which we talked about in episode number 47. That's a time when uh, in a particular work, a particular word only appears one time. Those words are difficult to translate. There's also other words like Nephilim or Nephilim, which are difficult or disputed, or we don't really know what they're, they mean. And we discussed that in episode number six of this podcast. In those cases, translators sometimes resort to what we call transliterations, which is an attempt to take the sound of a, of a word in the source language, such as biblical Hebrew or Greek, and represent it in the target language. You know, if you're translating into English, it would be English. And that's where we get words like Nephilim from. Nephilim or Nephilim is from the original Hebrew. It's not being translated. It's being written in English as near as possible to the pronunciation it has in Hebrew. Now, this obscures the meaning of the word, but it preserves the sound of the word. The trouble with doing this with the word Yahweh is that our original Hebrew Bibles don't have vowel sounds, only consonants. And because the early Hebrews refused to say God's name out loud because they respected him so much and they didn't want to blaspheme it, we don't know exactly how the name should be pronounced because we only have those four Hebrew consonants. At this point, let's tag in our friends at gotquestions.org to help us understand the dynamic better. And I believe this is Michael Hoodman who wrote this article. He says, in the original Hebrew, God's name transliterates to YHWH, sometimes written in the older style as YHVH. This is known as the tetragrammaton, which is just a fancy word that means four letters. Because of the lack of vowels, Bible scholars debate how the tetragrammaton YHWH was pronounced. The tetragrammaton consists of four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, and then He again. Some versions of the Bible translate the Tetragrammaton as Yahweh, which is what the Holman does. Some translate it as Jehovah with a J. Most translate it is as Lord with all capital letters. Contrary to what some Christians believe, and at least a few cults, Jehovah is not the divine name revealed to Israel. The name Jehovah is a product of mixing different words and different alphabets of different languages. Due to a fear, as we mentioned earlier, of accidentally taking God's name in vain, the Jews basically quit saying it out loud altogether. Instead, when reading scripture aloud, the Jews substituted the tetragrammaton YHWH with the word Adonai, which means Lord. Even in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the translators substituted Kyrios, which means Lord, 
for the divine name. Eventually, the vowels from Adonai, Lord, or Elohim, God, found their way in between the consonants of Y-H-W-H that formed the name Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. But that interpolation of vowels does not mean that was exactly how God's name was originally pronounced. We aren't entirely sure if Y-H-W-H should have two syllables or three. Any number of vowel sounds can be inserted within those four letters, and Jewish scholars today are as uncertain of the real pronunciation as Christian scholars are. Jehovah is much, much later, probably from the 1500s, and it's a variant. The word Jehovah comes from a three-syllable version of Y-H-W-H. The Y was replaced with a J, but Hebrew does not have the J sound, and the W with a V, and the extra vowel was added in the middle, and that's where we get Jehovah from. God's name is Yahweh, or something very close to that, even though we don't know exactly how to pronounce it, we know what it means, and that's the important thing. It means that God is the only non-created, non-caused being in the multiverse. Where did God from come from? He is because he is. Who created God? Nobody. He is because he is. How did God become God? He always has been. He is because he is. We pointed out in episode number 31 of this pod that there are many Elohims, which are spiritual beings, or if you will, gods with a lowercase g mentioned in the Bible, but there is only one Yahweh. He is the God above gods, the Lord of all lords, the King of kings. There is no one beside God. He is that he is. Interestingly, the name Jesus comes from Yahweh as well, or the Hebrew name Jesus. Jesus is of, from the Greek, but Jesus' name was Yahashua or Yahshua. It's the name Joshua in the, in the Hebrew, and it means Yahweh saves or salvation is of Yahweh. And one of the most obvious ways that Jesus told us that he was God was by using God's name Yahweh in John 8, referring back to Exodus chapter 3. And John Piper shared about this dynamic in a sermon from 2011. I'm going to quote him, and I think that's a good way to uh, close this part of the podcast and go back to the scripture. So this is what John Piper said in one of his messages. The Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And there it is, says Piper, the clearest, most forthright claim in the go- this gospel that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I am of Exodus 3.14 in the prophets. If he only wanted to claim pre-existence, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he means to say more than mere pre-existence. In other words, he means to say more than simply he's older than Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am, which calls back to Exodus 3.14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. So Jesus there is claiming to be Yahweh. Salvation is of Yahweh. So something to think about there. Tomorrow's question 
is going to be a sort of a follow-up from this question, and Lord willing, we're going to discuss what happens after God sends Moses to save his people, when Exodus chapter 4 says God is going to kill, possibly, Moses. Why did God want to kill Moses in Exodus chapter 4? Well, that's going to be our topic for tomorrow. For now, let's get back into the Bible, and we're going to read Job chapter 20, verse 1. Then Zophar the Naamathite replied, This is why my unsettling thoughts compel me to answer, because I am upset. I have heard a rebuke that insults me, and my understanding makes me reply. Don't you know that ever since antiquity, from the time a human was placed on the earth, the joy of the wicked has been brief, and the happiness of the godless has lasted only a moment? Though his arrogance reaches heaven and his head touches the clouds, he will vanish forever like his own dung. Those who know him will ask, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and never be found. He will be chased away like a vision in the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, and his household will no longer see him. His children will beg from the poor, for his own hands must give back his wealth. His frame may be full of youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil tastes sweet in his mouth and he conceals it under his tongue, though he cherishes it and will not let it go, but keeps it in his mouth, yet the food in his stomach turns into cobra's venom inside him. He swallows wealth, but must vomit it up. God will force it from his stomach. He will suck the poison of cobras. A viper's fangs will kill him. He will not enjoy the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. He must return the fruit of his labor without consuming it. He doesn't enjoy the profits from his trading, for he oppressed and abandoned the poor. He seized a house he did not build. Because his appetite is never satisfied, he does not let anything he desires escape. Nothing is left for him to consume, therefore his prosperity will not last. At the height of his success, distress will come to him. The full weight of misery will crush him. When he fills his stomach, God will send his burning anger against him, raining it down on him while he is eating. If he flees from an iron weapon, an arrow from a bronze bow will pierce him. He pulls it out of his back, the flashing tip out of his liver. Terrors come over him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. A fire unfanned by human hands will consume him. It will feed on what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions in his house will be removed, flowing away on the day of God's anger. This is the wicked person's lot from God, the inheritance God ordained for him. Luke chapter 6 verse 1. On a Sabbath he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts, and he told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he told him, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose twelve of them whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. After coming down with him, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note. Your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets." But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies... Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, 
pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite! First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out into your brother's eye. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately it collapsed, and the destruction of that house was great. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. The same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I see this as a, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than it is to burn with desire. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. 
Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let each one of us live his life in the situation the Lord assigned him when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He shouldn't get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each one of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were brought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they didn't own anything, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He's not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, well, do well. So then he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. May the Lord bless you and give you wisdom and understanding. May his word be fruitful in our lives. May he heal us and uphold us and strengthen us. Give us long life and health in Jesus' name. Good day to you, my friends, and Godspeed.